Good morning, everybody. All right. So today uh, we have, you may have noticed the tables in the back. We have a mission emphasis today. And so what that means is we do this a couple times a year. And mission emphasis is an opportunity for you guys to see what local partners that we have and who we're working with, right? And so these tables in the back have uh, some of our amazing partners. We have uh, Taylor Christian School and Community Center, Enviado Paramar, and then we have Young Lives and Stay Sharp Community Center over on this side. Uh, unfortunately, um, Safe Haven for Kids couldn't be here with us this morning, uh, and so keep them in mind too. But afterward, I would encourage you guys to go back and talk to the representatives from each one of these ministries. And these are ministries that are working uh, in this city and doing some pretty amazing things. And so if you would just hear, want to hear more about those stories, as well as kind of hear how some of our community groups and other people within the church are already helping and serving these ministries, uh, please go back and talk with them after the service. And so today uh, we're going to continue our series in First Peter and Kind of going with mission emphasis today, uh, as the mission director here, uh, it's something that I'm pretty passionate about, right? I mean, I have to be, right? <laughs> and so it's, it's something that I love and I uh, have devoted my life to really seeing uh, the way God works through mission in the lives of his people and the church, as well as how that affects change and transformation in non-believers because it is only through the church that he chooses to make himself known to the rest of the world. And so it's, it's very important. And as I was thinking through Mission Emphasis and praying over today, I started thinking about a lot of the conversations that I've had uh, recently with non-believers and with people uh, that I just meet and, and we start talking about God and, and the same type of questions seem to come up pretty much all the time. And so a few of those questions would be like, why does God allow suffering in my life? Because, you know, when I'm talking with people, uh, I, I talk about how God loves them and how he loves us. And so uh, that's, a, that's a big part of, of who God is, right? Like love. God is love. And yet these uh, people that I'm talking to, their first response is, but I am experiencing this, or I have gone through this, or you look at the news, you look at the world, and you see suffering, and you see pain. How does a good God who loves us allow these things? It's very difficult for people to wrap their minds around how an all-good and all-loving God, like I'm claiming, would allow such things to exist. And so, all the various questions that I get about this, really what it comes down to is one base thought. And that is, is God, like you claim, a loving father God? Or is he a indifferent God? A God that's apathetic and maybe even cruel because of the evil that they see in their lives. And so that's the question we want to kind of rest on today. And it Peter really talks about this and really kind of attacks this idea in this passage uh, very well. But that is what non-believers really want to know. Is God a loving Father God? Because nothing we say matters if he's not. Everything revolves around this idea. 
up to this point in this series, we uh, have talked about the, our identity in Christ as a child of God is an encouragement to us in the midst of our trials, in the midst of everything going on. And it's also a uh, basis for everything else that Peter's going to talk about in the rest of the letter. And so the first, uh, I believe, three weeks of this series has been pretty much about that, right? About how our identity is in God. And then last week, Pastor Marco did an amazing job talking about how we are then called to a pursuit of holiness in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, I think it was 12 through 16, right? And so in that, Peter is encouraging the church, he's encouraging the people reading the letter that, hey, you are a son, a daughter of God, and so be encouraged in the midst of everything going on, and because of your identity, then you should pursue holiness. And now in this point in uh, the passage where we're at today, which is verses 17 through 21, Peter is going to continue talking about pursuing holiness, but he takes a moment to, to recognize that there is a foundation that has to be built on before we continue talking about the actions involved. Because our actions are born out of our identity, who we are. And so we, if, we don't not, if we do not have a clear understanding of our identity, then, then it means nothing for him to say you should pursue holiness. And, the, and it, it's totally contingent on us understanding that God is a loving father. Otherwise, we, we can't be a son or daughter of God if he's not a loving father. And so Peter sees that this is, this is an important thing that we need to be able to understand. And so he takes this time to really solidify in our minds and to reassure us that God is in fact a loving father who is actively in relationship with his people. And so we're going to read 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21, and then dive into answering this question of how do we really know that he is a loving father? Where's the evidence for that? And Peter will tell us what that is. So starting verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who, raised from the, who God raised from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today and the opportunity to be able to uh, just worship you and, and glorify you as a family of believers here together. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing in the lives of Storehouse and uh, all the missional opportunities that we have in this city and beyond and everything, everything that we can see that you do. I ask that you help me today to be able to speak the words that you uh, have for people and that I won't, I won't allow my own words, my own things to come out, but rather, Holy Spirit, you just flow through me and allow your message to be, to be done. I thank you very much for this group of people and for the, for the family and the encouragement that they are to me individually as well as to the rest of us. So I thank you for this time today in your name. Amen. 
So how do we know that God is a loving, caring, active God? That, that's the question that we're diving into you. And really, there, I mean, there's no suspense in the answer. Like, we already know what the answer is. The answer is yes, otherwise we wouldn't be here. <laughs> um, and he says clearly, even in this passage that we just read, that the answer is yes, he is a father. He says it clearly in verse 17. And he's in relationship with us. And he even tells us the how and the why, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is how and why we can see that he is a loving father. But Peter very specifically wants to talk about not just, not just to say it again, but, but rather to reinforce it and make sure that those who maybe don't know exactly what that means, he wants to make sure that we do. Because, like I said before, this is a foundation. Without this knowledge, then we have nothing else to stand on, and we cannot continue into a pursuit of holiness, which is where he's going in, in the future with this, if we do not know that we have an actual reason to follow God. And it's very, very important to not allow ourselves when we reach these kind of passages in the Bible to think, oh, I know this already. This is old news, right? Because in, what, 18 through 21, he's just talking about Jesus uh, dying on the cross and, and paying the price for our sins, right? These are things that we've heard multiple times in church if you've ever, if you've ever attended a church. And so it's easy to kind of look at this passage and be like, oh, of course I know this. Let's get back to the practical stuff. Let's get to the stuff that, you know, really applies. But without this real understanding of this, then it doesn't even matter, and you won't actually be able to do any of the application. And it's easy when we start thinking like that to get to a point where we start assuming that we know what the gospel is without actually knowing what the gospel is. In Judges 2, uh, this is the time when uh, the Israelites have come into the promised land and uh, Joshua led them there. And so this is, now they've been living in the promised land and Joshua is about to die, okay? And so it's Judges 2, 6 through 10. It says, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And so they're now there, they're just living. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And so Joshua and his generation, the generation that went through the wilderness, that came into the promised land, they have seen God guide them through all these uh, trials and tribulations. And and they come here and they served God because they had seen the evidence of it. And they are living for him. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, dies at the age of 110. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in the hill country, etc. And all that generation also gathered to their fathers. And so Joshua and his whole generation, they die. Okay? And then it says, the very next sentence, And there arose another generation after them, their children, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This is one generation. These are their children who as soon as Joshua and his generation die, this next generation of their own kids who grew up in their homes being mentored by them had no clue who God was or what he had done. How does that happen? Well, it happens because they began to assume that they knew what the gospel was. Joshua and his generation thought, of course our kids know who 
God is. Of course they know what he has done because for them, they had seen it so clearly in their own lives and they had seen the, the impact of it. And so they just assumed that their experience and their own faith in God was going to lead their children to know who he is. And yet we see clearly that they did not. And this also implies that Joshua and his generation at the end of their lives weren't even talking about the things of God. Because if you love something, you're going to talk about it, right? Just ask any CrossFitter. And so, and so we, we know that this is something that they weren't even talking about. And so you see that the, their kids didn't know because it wasn't a passion. It wasn't something that Joshua and his generation were really engaged in. And so it became assumed by them that, of course, we know what God did. We, we lived through it. Of course, we know what the gospel is. We, we know who God is and what he's done. Of course, we don't need to talk about it. We don't need to be in the midst of it. And then as soon as they die, we see the result, that their children had no clue who God was or what he had done. That is the result of assuming that we know exactly what the gospel is saying and allowing ourselves to gloss over these kind of passages. And it's important to also recognize that, yes, it happened to a future generation, to their children, but the evidence says that it also happened in their own lives because they stopped talking about it. It stopped being important. And so Peter says we need to pursue holiness by knowing the reason why and how we're going to pursue holiness. In verse 18, he uses a very specific Greek word to say knowing that you have been ransomed out. Now this this word says, the, the definition is to understand or perceive the force and meaning of something which has definite meaning. And so this means that you have a clear understanding of it. You, you not just, uh, just kind of have this head knowledge of it, but rather you can perceive it, you can pierce to the truth of the statement, and you internalize it. You make it something that you truly know with your whole body. And the best thing that I can think of that kind of makes sense in this context is muscle memory. And so this can be anything. Uh, I thought of it because I'm an athlete, and so I think of like when you're uh, doing soccer or something, you practice the same move over and over and over because you want your muscles to automatically be able to do it. But we all do it, whether you're an athlete or not, even just thinking of writing something with a pencil. Your hand knows how to make the letter because you have practiced since you were a child how to write that letter. And so when you're writing something, you're maybe thinking of, you know, what word you want to write, but are you really thinking about this is how I make an A and this is how I make a B, this is how I make a C? No, you're just writing the word and your hand knows what it's supposed to do and you can do it naturally. That's what muscle memory is. We have internalized the ability, we have internalized the knowledge of how to write letters so that our body naturally does it 
and then we are able to write without really thinking about it. In the same way, that's what this word knowing, to know means in this, in this passage is that we have internalized the truth of the statement he's about to say so much that we don't even have to think about it. Rather, it's something that is expressed naturally in our entire life. And, and honestly, I can say I, I don't always have that as a natural response. Sometimes I have to force myself to really be in a situation and in a conversation and I have to force myself to turn it to Jesus because I'm so worried about so many other things, whether it's their reaction or whether it's my own agenda maybe in that conversation. It's not an internal reaction all the time where I am reacting just naturally to let's praise God in this moment. And yet that's what he's saying we need to be able to do is to be able to react just with muscle memory to know what the gospel is and what the gospel truly means in our lives. Because without that, then we're not going to be able to do the, the pursuit of holiness that he's talking about in the rest of this chapter. And, it, and it's important to also see at the end of that definition that it's, it's this internalization, uh, this knowledge, this true knowledge of something that has definite meaning. It, it's intentional. It's purposeful. It's not some random fact that we're supposed to know. Rather, it is perceiving the truth of something in a way that is intentional. And so we look at what Peter said up to this point And then he gives us a story in verses 18 through 21 that really just explains how and why God is a loving father. And he says, make sure you know this in a powerful way. So we're going to walk through that and see exactly what it is that we're supposed to know. Where's the evidence for God as a loving father? So the the original question is, uh, is God indifferent? Is he indifferent to our suffering, our pain, or is he maybe even cruel because of all the evil in the world? How, how is this possible? I, I know a lot of people uh, want to even say, well, if he truly loved us, then we would all just go to heaven. I'm sure some of you have heard that statement before, right? These are things that people say. The, this is real life happening, and Peter's addressing it. And so we're going to start from the very basics, from the very beginning, God cannot act outside of his character. And so to understand that, we have to understand who God really is. And so with that, uh, we see that he is creator. In verse 17, it says that we need to act in, uh, act in fear throughout our time of exile, fear in this life. And it doesn't mean that we fear him in the sense of like, uh, I fear like the dark or fear spiders or whatever. Uh, like Rick told me about this wraparound spider, which like, I don't know, it, it's scary. But not that kind of fear, right? It's talking throughout scripture, this phrase comes up and you'll see it, the fear of the Lord. And it's talking about having a true understanding of just the majesty of God. And that word doesn't even begin to describe it, but it's the closest thing I can think of, of just the majesty, the vastness of him. I mean, God created everything he exists in all places. He's all-knowing. He is, he is so much more than we can even imagine. This is the God that we serve. 
And I think it's easy sometimes to forget it because we like to quantify him and put him into our box of religion or, or uh, even, even in terms of the Bible, we, we look at it and we say, you know, this is God and this is God's revelation to us and this is pure truth. But God is so much more than just a book. He is so much more than anything we can understand in this life. God is truly awe-inspiring and majestic. He is also holy and just. So holy means that you are perfect without sin. God is without sin because he is perfect. He, he's also just, meaning he's the only one even worthy enough to judge anyone because he's the only one without sin. He's the only one that's perfect. And so it's also a level of perfection we cannot truly understand in a way because we, we cannot obtain that ourselves, right? No matter how good you are, no matter how hard you try to do everything well and perfectly, we mess up. We're always going to mess up. But God, he does not mess up. He is holy. He is perfect. He is the level of morality that we all try to live up to. All morality is born out of him in his goodness. And the truth is that he has created a place for us to spend eternity with him in heaven And we cannot be in heaven if we are also not perfect because he, this is a place of perfection. This is a place without sin, without corruption, without evil. And so if we are to be in the presence of God, we, we have to be perfect and without sin, without corruption. And at this point, some people may immediately think, Uh, and this is a question that I've gotten many times as well, is, okay, well, why did God allow sin? Why did he allow the fall? And it's a tough question, and there's many theories about it, and honestly, I'm not going to get into all of them because that's what they are. They're theories. Scripture does not clearly state in a very clear sentence, this is why God allowed sin. Like I said, there's many theories, and there's some really good ones, and there's even one that I believe more than the others. And if you want to talk about that, then I will gladly talk about it afterward. But that would be an entire sermon. I mean, it could be a lecture series like of its own. And so we're not going to get into that. The truth is, though, that we see that sin and evil does exist, right? The evidence is there before us. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are things we don't know. There are things that God has not revealed to us in fullness, and yet he says clearly that he has revealed enough for us to know his character, to know who he is, and to know that there is ample evidence that he is a loving Father God. He proves this through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's take stock of what we've talked about so far, real quick. Evil does exist. We see it. Nobody can deny that. 
Now, God, though, is holy and he's just. That's his character. And so we are going to be judged according to his own level of morality, which is perfection. And we're going to be judged guilty. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if we stop the story here, it does seem pretty bleak, right? If we stop it here, I would even say I would agree that God is indifferent to us because we're held to this standard that's impossible to meet. It would be difficult, and I, and I understand that. And this is where the story ends for so many people, unfortunately, who do not know who God is and do not have a relationship with him. And that's why they're asking these questions. See, an indifferent God, he gives no way out of this judgment. But a loving, a good Father God, he gives us a way to be seen holy so that we may not be condemned. That's the difference. Indifference means he does nothing a cruel God may even tell us that we can't, that we have this standard that we're supposed to live up to, but we can't do it. And then he sits back and just watches us fall on our face. That may even be cruel. But see, a loving God has given you a way out, even in the middle of your sin. And he planned it this way. In verse 20, it talks about before the foreknowledge of the world that he sent his son. And so we see that it is all part of his plan because he knew that we would have free will. We would have the decisions to make. We can decide to do good or evil. He knew that we would also fail and do evil more often than not. God planned to always give us a way to redemption. It clearly says that before we were even created, he gave us a way. Calvin, John Calvin says that it is a restoration to life. And I love that phrase, restoration to life. We are given life in the midst of death, in the midst of our own sin. And it happened before we were even created. He lovingly gives us a way to redemption and an eternity and perfection. And that way is only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In 18, it says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for your sake. We are saved from our futile attempts to be able to be good, our, our attempts to be able to be what, what we feel like we should be, our own standard of morality, and yet it, it, we can't even live up to that, let alone the morality of God, because he's completely perfect. And see, the, the amazing thing is, though, that he paid the price with his own blood. He saved us from our own damnation in the only way that's even possible. He paid it with his own perfection. And he did it from the beginning. Before he even created us, he knew that the price of our creation was his own death. And that's a powerful truth. 
And even knowing that, he created us anyway because he is also perfectly good and relational. And our father, he loved us so much that he still created us knowing the heartache and the pain and the death that he would have to go through to be able to save us. Only a father would do that. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. See, our, our evil, our sin was not a surprise to him. He went into creation knowing exactly what was going to happen. He knew that we would choose to do evil and that he was going to have to die on the cross in a horrific way, a way that we can't even comprehend in today's modern world, in a way that suffered. And yet he knew that was going to be the price just to have a relationship with us. It is a powerful thing. So God cannot be indifferent or apathetic or cruel. It's impossible. When you look at really what he did and how his character shows through in his holiness and his justice, to be just, he didn't have to save us. Just to be just, he could have said, you're failing. You are not meeting the level that you're supposed to, and so you are condemned. But he loves you so much because you are his children that he gave us a way to be redeemed and restored. That's how we know that he is a father. How we know that he is in active relationship with us because of the very evidence of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And so knowing this, Peter says we have to know this and internalize this. And don't forget the details. Don't allow it to become something old. Don't allow it to become stale in your life. Knowing this will lead you to a relationship with God. And he also then says that there's a clear application, which is the rest of uh, this chapter and you know, starting last week even, it's a pursuit of holiness, and there's a clear application even in verse 17 here in this passage. And, as, and Peter says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter's warning us that without truly understanding and internalizing what he says in 18 through 21, what we just talked about, what Jesus really did, without actually truly knowing that, then we can easily be deceived. And we can really be deceived by ourselves. And so I see two possible ways that we deceive ourselves here. One, we think our status or relationship with God exempts us from holiness. And this is, this is a lie that we tell ourselves, and so you may not even realize you're doing it. But it's also very common. I mean, Peter wouldn't say it otherwise. When we remember who God really is and we look at his character and his majesty and, and we have true fear for him, which, remember, that's just awe of him and his character and who he is. When we truly live in that state, 
then we will not take our sin lightly. And that's the, that's the temptation. See, it says that you conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. As a believer, this time on earth is a very short amount of time for eternity because we have an internal citizenship in the kingdom of God forever. This time is a, a sojourn. It's an exile. It's a time where we are here in the midst of temptation, but just for a short time. We need to remember, though, that that temptation is still real. We still sin, and we still do evil now. And so if we think that just because we know who God is, just because we're Christians, just because we have a relationship with him, he'll forgive me for that. It's okay if I mess up this one time or if I tell this lie or I do whatever because I know that God loves me and he's going to forgive me. When we start thinking like that, then we are taking lightly our own sin and also also diminishing who God really is because he is the creator. He is so vast that we can't even comprehend it. And so we should not take him lightly. We should not take our sin lightly and what that truly means. The second thing that I see, the second way we deceive ourselves is that sometimes we even lie to ourselves about having a relationship with God at all. It's very easy to get caught up in religion or maybe this is the culture of our family and I've grown up in the church and so of course I know who God is. Of course I know what Jesus has done for me and yet I go throughout life not really having a relationship with him. And yet we see clearly that God is a relational God and he wants to be in relationship with you. He is a father God, which means you are his child. And a father and his child, they need to have a relationship. You may have a head knowledge of certain things. You may be able to quote scripture. You may be able to listen to as many podcasts as you want throughout the week. And yet you don't really have any kind of knowledge of what a relationship with him is like. It's a lie that we tell ourselves And it's a lie that we see so often in the church. Statistically speaking, in the American church, only about a third of people attending the average church actually even know who God is, personally. That's really, really sad and really low. And it's because we allow these lies to creep in and we lie to ourselves and deceive ourselves saying that we know who God is when in fact we do not really know who he is. We do not want that lie to dictate our lives. Matthew seven twenty one through 23 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Did we not go to church every single Sunday? Did I not go through the classes membership? Did I not do everything I'm supposed to do? And yet we see that he says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We can be as good as we think we are. We can do all the right things. And if we don't have a relationship with God, then it means nothing. And he will say, I do not know who you are. And your status as a Christian or the attendance record you have on Sundays will not save you. Rather, we need to not deceive ourselves and have a true relationship with a loving Father God who wants to be in relationship with you. It's so easy to do because He is pursuing you and He wants it. And so with this, I also see two guards from this deception, two ways that we can make sure that we're not deceiving ourselves because that's the hardest part, right? Is if you're lying to yourself, how are you supposed to call yourself on it? How are you supposed to see that this is, this is what I'm doing? And so we see here in the passage, he, Peter says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Now, he's not saying that our deeds, our works are what's going to save us. That's not what he's saying. We are saved by faith in Christ. We are saved by faith alone. But he is saying that your deeds are going to be an evidence of that faith. And without them, then how, how is anyone supposed to know? Without them, a faith can't even exist. John 15, 5 through 8 says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you abide in Christ, if you abide in God, if you have that relationship, then you are going to bear fruit. And so what's that actually look like? Well, thankfully, God has given us in his wisdom Fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, which is a very nice list that we can look at and say, do we have these things? Patience, peace, kindness, self-control, all these things that he gives and lays out for us. And we can say, do we see the evidence of this in our life? Do we have patience? Do we have self-control? And don't look at the person next to you. Don't say, ah, they don't have patience. I know that. Now look at your own life. Do you have the fruit of the Spirit? Are you bearing fruit in your life, in your actions, in your deeds, in your thoughts, in your character? Are you exemplifying these things? If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you're not showing fruit, if you're not bearing fruit because of a relationship with God, then you don't have a relationship with God. And you will be gathered up and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus said it so clearly and plainly. It is by the fruit of your actions in your life that you are proving to be disciples of him. And if you don't have it, you're not a disciple. 
So we seek to bear fruit. That's the first guard. And, and this is difficult, and it is something that uh, you'll want to ask people around you. Don't be afraid to have that conversation, to go to somebody and be like, I need to know, are you seeing fruit in my life? Or am I lying to myself and thinking that just because uh, I'm a believer that I'm exempt from, from pursuing holiness? Or maybe, uh, have you seen no fruit at all in my entire life? Do I even really have a relationship with him? How do I get there? And so seek out brothers and sisters in Christ who can help you to bear fruit because we're not supposed to do it alone. He gave us the church. It says clearly that he's the vine, right? The branches. That means there's multiple shoots off of it. We're all part of the same organism. So you don't do it alone. We do it together as a family. And the second thing, and the last thing for today, is that we we can guard ourselves against this deception by having a godly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians 7, Verse 10, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This grief, this godly grief, godly sorrow over our sin leads us to repentance, leads us to a true understanding of what our sin is. See, worldly grief leads to death. It leads to shame and it leads to guilt things that paralyze us and and restrain us from being able to move past those things. But an understanding of who God is as our Father and understanding how our sin and the things that we do hurt Him, that will lead us into a deeper relationship with Him and a, a repentance, a turning away of those things because we understand who God is and what he's done for us. And it, and it breaks you. Having that godly sorrow will break you. And we're all gonna respond differently. So I'm not saying you have to be that person that breaks down on your knees and you're just weeping uncontrollably. That's not gonna be everybody. That may be you, but it's not gonna be everybody. We all respond in different ways. But the question really is, do you have Grief over your sin. Not a head knowledge of what it is. Not, not just the facts of how it lays out religiously. But do you truly understand how you are hurting your father, your heavenly father, by sinning and doing these things? That understanding will lead you to being broken over it. And having a grief, a sorrow that breaks your heart. My prayer for you today and this whole past week has been that you will experience that. That you'll experience that godly sorrow over your sin and that it will lead, lead uh, you and I to repentance which leads to salvation and leads to a relationship, a reconciliation with our Father. That's my prayer for you. And these are the things that we need to pursue. Before we can pursue holiness, before we can do these actions, we need to pursue a relationship with Him. Let's pray together. 
Lord, thank you so much for today and the opportunity to be able to just worship you and have an understanding of who you are and your character and everything that you've done for us. And I pray that you will help us all to be able to take this knowledge and truly just know it, where it is something imprinted upon our hearts, where we have this understanding of you that leads us to want to have a relationship with you because we know for a fact that you are a loving father who has sacrificed so much for his children and continued to do so out of just love, just pure love, that nothing we do can ever justify it, but yet you love us so much that you've done it anyway. You did it before we even did it. God, you are so amazing, and we thank you for that. And I ask that you help us to be able to guard ourselves against the deceptions that the enemy put in our own minds and our hearts so that we can be led astray from you. Rather, help us to be able to know who you are and who we are in you as a child, a son and a daughter of you. And let that knowledge lead us to repentance and lead us to have grief over our own sins so that we may honor you and serve you as the ultimate creator and our heavenly father. We thank you for all this in your glory. And Lord, I want to ask right now too that you will bless this time of tithe and offering as we transition into the rest of our service today. This is one of those things that you talk about throughout scripture. You talk about giving so much and It's because it's one of these fruits that we can see how our lives are being changed and affected by you and your character, how we are able to pursue holiness through the actions that we see. And so that's one of these things is giving and being generous and not allowing money or status or anything else to be able to have hold over our lives. And so I thank you for this opportunity because that's what it is. It's an opportunity to just worship you in another way. So I thank you for that time today and for our time together so far. In your name, amen.